Welcome to the Aviation Podcast. My name is Dave, a commercial pilot with a Group 1 IFR and a current CFI candidate. Today's episode, we're doing something a little different. It's story time. The Avro Aero, the fighter interceptor that Canada should have built. The best in aviation. Stick around and thanks for tuning in to episode 9 of the Aviation Podcast. going on guys and thanks so much for tuning in to episode 9 of the aviation podcast we're one away from that episode 10 i want to thank you for stopping by and supporting the the new podcast that i've uh new venture i've been going on here so i appreciate it it means a lot to me every download every comment every email that i get i really really appreciate it. remember if you have any questions comments concerns or you want to tell me how wrong i was on something just send me an email over at theaviationpodcast at gmail.com. That's spelled the and aviation, E-H, not with an A. So in today's episode, we have a really great story. I'm sure that you have heard of the Avro Aero. If uh, you've been involved in any sort of Canadian aviation, this is something that uh, I, I think the only way to describe it is the biggest debacle in Canadian aviation history, the Avro Aero. It was an amazing fighter interceptor that was never put into fruition. Uh, it was designed, it was flight tested, and it was shut down by the Canadian government. Uh, there's a lot of reasons as to why uh, that were both the uh, the public, let's say, reason that was given by the government. Uh, and then there's also the other reasons why, you know, maybe there's some things going on behind the scenes. But uh, nonetheless... This story is fantastic, and this isn't said by me. You know what? I wanted to do this episode. Uh, there is an Avro Aero replica that is at my home base airport, and I've always wanted to learn a little bit more about the Avro Aero and learn, uh, actually tell that story out to some other people. Some people maybe uh, from south of the border may not know as much about the Avro Aero because uh, this is a real Canadian marvel. Uh, however, this this video I found on YouTube, this gentleman does a fantastic job, uh, and I there's no possible way that I could have done it better myself. There's no way. Um, as much as I want to try, uh, it's just not going to happen, and you have to know when someone is just much, much better at storytelling. And so uh, Pilot photo, Photog, um, or Pilot Photo G, however he wants to say it, um, is a YouTube channel. Uh, so definitely go check them out. I'm going to put the link directly to this video in the show notes. Uh, so you can check that out as well. Give them a subscribe, give them a thumbs up and uh, show them some support because uh, you, you know what? This, this story is unbelievable. He did such a fantastic job at uh, showing it. So a uh, little one-off episode today. I appreciate it. I appreciate your patience on some of the episodes coming out right now. been really, really busy with this CFI stuff uh, and life. So I appreciate it. I appreciate the patience. I do have something coming down the pipeline that I, I can't wait to have. It might be our first guest on the show. So thanks a lot for sticking around. And 
the Avro Arrow, the fighter interceptor that Canada should have built. I think you're really going to enjoy this, and thanks for sticking around. The Avro CF-105 Arrow was a late 1950s Delta-winged interceptor aircraft which incorporated design elements and performance far ahead of its time. Intended to serve as Canada's premier fighter interceptor into the 1960s and beyond, the Arrow program was abruptly cancelled less than one year after its first flight. A victim of bad timing and politics, the demise of the Arrow forever altered the course of the Canadian aerospace industry and internationally scattered the talented individuals who worked on the project. Today, we will look at the circumstances that spawned this incredible aircraft, its performance, and its lasting legacy. At the end of World War II, the Soviet Union embarked on a mission to develop nuclear-capable, long-range strategic bombers which could reach Europe and North America. During this time, jet bombers became able to fly higher and faster, making both piston-engine and first-generation jet fighters ineffective in neutralizing the newer bombers. As a result, development in the West focused on high-flying, faster interceptors that could interdict the bombers well before they could enter their effective payload range. To defend North America, the Royal Canadian Air Force, or RCAF, patrolled the Northern Arctic, ever on the alert for approaching Soviet bombers coming over the North Pole. In 1945, Hawker Siddeley created a subsidiary known as AV Row Canada, with facilities located at the Malton, Ontario Airport. Within a year, AV Row, or Avro, designed the RCAF's first ever jet fighter, the CF-100 Canuck. After much testing and a lengthy prototyping stage filled with various challenges, the all-weather CF-100 Canuck entered service seven years later in 1953. Despite these delays, the CF-100 went on to have a long career, serving in various roles all the way up until 1981. However, almost as soon as the CF-100 was deployed, the RCAF realized that a newer and faster interceptor was needed. In 1953, the RCAF released specification AIR-7-3. The requirements for AIR-7-3 were as follows. A twin-engine, two-man crewed aircraft with a Mach 1.5 cruising speed, a 50,000 feet service ceiling, a ground turnaround time of less than 10 minutes, and the ability to reach 50,000 feet and Mach 1 in 5 minutes from a cold engine start. Additionally, the aircraft would have to be able to perform a 2G turn at Mach 1.5 at 50,000 feet without losing altitude. Finally, the new aircraft was also to have a range of 300 nautical miles for a normal mission and 200 nautical miles for a high-speed intercept mission. And if these requirements sound outlandish for the early 1950s, they were. In fact, an RCAF team visited manufacturers in the United States, UK, and France and concluded that not only were there no existing fighters that could meet these requirements, there were not any planned fighters that could. The Arrow, however, would not just meet these requirements, but exceed them. By the time the AIR 7-3 requirements had been published, Avril had already been conducting extensive research on supersonic aircraft. In fact, the little-known CF-103 had made it to the prototyping wooden mock-up stage. The CF-103 was a CF-100 with swept wings. The swept wings allowed for better transonic performance, however, when a straight-wing CF-100 broke the sound barrier in 1952, interest in the CF-103 dried up. Despite this, Avril continued to research and develop airframe designs. The next aircraft in the series became known as the CF-104. 
the CF-104 made use of a Delta Wing. The Delta Wing had the same advantages of a swept wing in supersonic and transonic flight, with the added benefit of providing much more internal area for fuel, a vital component for a long-range and fast interceptor. The disadvantages of Delta Wings are increased drag at low speeds and altitudes, along with much higher drag while maneuvering. However, given the interceptor mission for which it was being designed, these disadvantages were deemed minimal. The CF-104 actually had two variants, a single-engine CF-104-4 and a twin-engine CF-104-2. Avro submitted the CF-104 designs to the RCAF in 1952, and this ultimately led to the AIR-7-3 requirements. Upon receiving the revised requirements, Avro submitted their updated two-seat version of the CF-104-2 in 1953, which was then given the designation CF-105. Aside from the additional seat, another significant change from the CF-104 design to the CF-105 prototype was a shoulder-mounted wing, which allowed for quick access to the aircraft's weapons, engines, and internal components. Moving the wing up to the shoulder-mounted position also allowed for a more efficient construction method as well as strengthening the wing, as the entire wing area could be built as a single unit. The CF-105 also had an internal weapons bay, a feature found in today's fifth-generation all-stealth fighters such as the F-22 and F-35. The Arrow's weapons bay could carry short- and long-range air-to-air missiles or four conventional 1,000-pound bombs. With the airframe's preliminary design completed, the next step was to look for engines to power the interceptor. Initially, the Rolls-Royce RB-106 engines were selected. The RB-106s could produce for the time an outstanding 21,000 pounds or 93 kilonewtons of thrust. With principal design and an airframe and engine selected, in mid-1954, wind tunnel work began, along with computer simulations that were performed both in Canada and the United States. Additionally, nine scale models complete with instruments that supplied telemetry to ground stations were constructed. These models were mounted on top of a Nike solid fuel rocket booster and launched from the shores of Lake Ontario at Point Pete. Two additional models were tested over the Atlantic Ocean at the NASA facility located at Wallops Island, Virginia. The models could be flown to a maximum speed of Mach 1.7 and were intentionally crashed into the water at the end of their flights. As a testament to the Arrow's initial design, these flight tests showed the need for only minor modifications most notably the slight negative camber to the wings, which assisted in controlling aircraft trim, a dog tooth located roughly at half the span which helped control spanwise flow, and to aid in high alpha performance, the drooping of the leading edges of the wings. And finally, the addition of a sharpening of the nose profile, thinning of the intake lips, and adding a tail cone were applied to make use what is known as the Whitcomb Area Rule. The Whitcomb Area Rule describes design methods that can be implemented to reduce an aircraft's drag at transonic and supersonic speeds. This is typically between Mach 0.75 and Mach 1.2. With an updated airframe, the Arrow could move into its next phase, production. Typically, when a new fighter is developed, one or several prototypes are hand-built and then test-flown. The idea is that as problems are encountered and solutions developed, changes can be quickly made before tooling up for full-scale production. However, in the case of the Arrow, the Crook-Craggy plan, which calls for the setting up of a full production line and building a small initial batch of fighters was implemented. This was done to accommodate the timetable that was set up by the RCAF. Once the initial batch of aircraft were built and flight tested, changes could be applied to the entire production line, 
and updated examples could be built. Needless to say, this approach was both unconventional and risky, and in order to offset some of the risks, an extensive testing program was implemented. The Aero made use of advanced materials including magnesium and titanium, with titanium being difficult to machine and of course expensive. The Aero also made use of an early fly-by-wire system which translated the pilot's input electronically to servos which operated the hydraulic control system. Initial versions of this control system remove control feel or feedback to the pilot, so Avro engineers devised an ingenious solution, a force feedback system which sent back pressure fluctuations to the controls that created an artificial field to assist the pilots. This was the first of its kind and would be revisited 20 years later in the General Dynamics F-16. The Arrow was shaping up to be a technical marvel and a revolutionary step forward, but there were problems encountered. In early 1956, the RCAF placed additional requirements on the yet-to-fly aircraft, most notably the incorporation of the Astra fire control system, along with the advanced U.S. Navy Sparrow II missile. Both the Astra and Sparrow II were in their early prototype stages, and even after the U.S. Navy canceled the Sparrow II in 1956, Canada Air purchased the project to continue development. For the record, Avril preferred to go with the MX-1179 fire control system and the Falcon missile, both which were much further along in development and would have cost significantly less. Another issue faced in the production stage was the engines. In the UK, the intended Rolls-Royce RB106s were cancelled due to budget cuts, at which point Avro opted to go with the Wright J67 engines as a backup, but when the J67 program was also cancelled, the Pratt & Whitney J75 was chosen for initial flight tests for what was to be termed the Mark I Aero. The Mark II Aeros were to use the much more powerful Arenda PS13 Aeroquois engines. More on that later. Despite all these challenges, the first CF-105 Aero designated RL-201 was rolled out on October 4, 1957. Anticipating a momentous occasion, Avril invited over 13,000 guests to attend the rollout. The day indeed turned out to be a historic one, globally in fact, just not the way Avril had hoped. Somewhat tragically, October 4, 1957 was also the same day that the Soviets launched Sputnik, kicking off the space race and giving great credence to the missile theory, while making interceptors and even fighters look obsolete in the minds of many military planners at the time. Still, the Arrow made it to the flight test phase, with the first flight taking place on March 25, 1958. Chief pilot Janice Zerokowski was at the controls of RL-201, and reported no major problems with the Aero, which demonstrated excellent handling in all flight regimes. Four more J-75-powered CF-105 Aeros would be produced, designated RL-202 through RL-205 respectively. Flight testing continued with the third flight resulting in the Aero going supersonic, and the seventh flight reaching 50,000 feet, with a top speed of Mach 1.95 being recorded. It is important to note that these initial test flights were internally conducted by Avro and not meant to push the arrow to its limits, but rather were proof-of-concept flights. It is likely that further rigorous testing would have ensued once the arrow was formally handed over to the RCAF. During these initial test flights, minor problems were encountered and resolved. These included the Aero Stability Augmentation System, or SAS, which is common on modern aircraft but cutting edge in late 1950s and as a result required frequent fine-tuning. As testing for the Aero progressed, 
Canada tried to sell the CF-105 to the United States and the UK. The United States was already at work on their own interceptor, which would eventually lead to the Convair F-106 Delta Dart. In the UK, the British Ministry of Supply issued Operational Requirement F.155, which specified the need for a high-performance interceptor to defend the UK from Soviet nuclear-armed supersonic bombers. The arrow fit this role perfectly, and in 1956, the UK's Air Council went as far as to recommend purchasing 144 arrows. France also showed an interest in the Iroquois engine to power an enlarged bomber version of the Dassault Mirage 4, known as the Mirage 4B. During this time, development continued on the Iroquois engine, where testing showed that the engine had the ability to be relit at altitudes of up to 60,000 feet. And in 1956, an Iroquois engine was attached to the right side of an American B-47 Stratojet, on loan to Canada Air for testing. The modified B-47 was designated the CL-52 and had the distinction of being the only B-47 operated by any foreign service. By 1958, over 5,000 hours of testing had been completed on the Iroquois engines and a Mark II arrow designated RL-206 was fitted with a pair of Iroquois engines, which together were capable of generating 60,000 pounds of thrust at afterburner. In fact, once produced, many believed the Mark II arrows would be the most advanced aircraft of its time. Here are some specifications for the Mark II arrow. Length, 26.1 meters. Height, 6.5 meters. Wingspan, 15.2 meters. Maximum speed up to 2,453 kilometers per hour or Mach 2 plus. Ceiling estimated to be 58,000 feet. Range, 1,330 kilometers. Empty weight, 19,935 kilograms. Maximum takeoff weight, 28,319 kilograms. Engine. Each Arenda Iroquois PS-13S generates 26,000 pounds of thrust dry or 30,000 pounds of thrust with afterburner. The Arrow had an incredibly bright future, and there were even preliminary designs of a Mark III version capable of speeds up to Mach 3. However, there was trouble on the horizon, which had been brewing for some time. The Arrow program was incredibly expensive causing strong opposition to develop as early as 1953 from the Chiefs of Staff of both the Canadian Army and Navy, who felt that substantial funds were being diverted to the RCAF. Air Marshal Hugh Campbell, however, diligently backed the program. In 1957, the progressive conservative government led by John Diefenbaker was elected. Diefenbaker campaigned under the promise of reining in rampant spending and the very expensive Aero project was a natural target. Diefenbacher also signed the North American Air Defense or NORAD agreement with the United States, which effectively made Canada a partner with American Command and Control. At the same time, the USAF was working on Project SAGE, an ambitious effort to integrate the air defense of North America. Key to the SAGE project was the use of Bomark nuclear-tipped anti-aircraft missiles, a plan was proposed to sell both the SAGE system and the Bomark missiles with a price tag of over $270 million. This did not include Canada's cost to upgrade the radars. Essentially, it was determined that Canada could afford the SAGE Bomark system or the Arrow, but not both. 
With growing fears of attacks from intercontinental ballistic missiles, the term missile gap began to be applied to describe the new arms race focused around missiles. Still, the first Mark II Arrow, RL-206, was getting ready for taxi trials and poised to break world altitude and speed records. Then, the unthinkable happened. On February 20th, 1959, Diefenbacher rose up in Parliament and announced the immediate cancellation of both the CF-105 Aero and the Arenda Iroquois engine. Workers at the Melton plant were shocked, and almost 30,000 people lost their jobs with the announcement. The day would forever be known as Black Friday in Canadian aviation history. Avro executives had expected the program would last until at least March, when RL-206 was expected to fly and break world records. Attempts were made to save the aircraft and transfer the project either to the National Research Council of Canada or to the UK's Royal Aircraft Establishment, but neither effort materialized. Exact reasons for the abrupt cancellation of the project may never be known, but Diefenbacher's claim was that following a thorough investigation of threats, defensive countermeasures, and costs led to the cancellation of the project. Politicians felt that the arrow was too expensive and would need to produce hundreds of models to recoup the costs. To add to this tremendous national tragedy, less than two months after the cancellation of the project, all aircraft, engines, tooling, technical diagrams and data related to the Aero project were ordered destroyed. The aircraft that had captured the imagination of a nation and was nothing short of revolutionary was unceremoniously hacked to pieces and scrapped. Aero's RL-201 through 205, all flying examples, gone. RL-206, with the advanced Iroquois engines and about to fly, gone. The under-assembly Arrows 207 through 209, some of which were as far as 91% completed, gone. Officially, the reason for this abrupt and heavy-handed action was to destroy secret and classified materials that were used both in the Arrow and Iroquois programs, as there were fears of a Soviet mole that had infiltrated the programs. Needless to say, this official stance was far from accepted, with many wondering if there were other causes or factors, including one viewpoint that questions if the United States had pressured the Canadian government to terminate a program they felt was threatening to American aerospace industries. However, it should be noted that the United States did provide use of wind tunnels, computer systems, and in the case of the Iroquois engine, a B-47 flying platform for aerial testing. Still, to this day, many wonder why and how this could have happened. The cancellation of the Arrow had far-reaching consequences. The incredibly talented individuals who worked on the program were internationally scattered and went on to either lead or play key roles in some of the greatest projects in aviation history. Jim Chamberlain, the chief aerodynamicist along with 25 engineers, went on to lead NASA's Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs which culminated in humanity's first and still only manned moon landing Rod Rose went on to be a technical assistant for the STS or space shuttle program. Still others went on to work on efforts that would lead to the supersonic airliner, the Concorde. With the cancellation of its biggest project, 
the Aero's parent company Avro soon went out of business. And as for the RCAF, the US-made McDonald's CF-101 Voodoo was adopted as Canada's interceptor just over three years after canceling the Aero. Naturally, the adoption of the CF-101 was met with controversy and ultimately led to the collapse of the Diefenbaker government. In the end, 132 CF-101s would be procured and they would serve until 1987, with the RCAF converting to the CF-18 Hornet in 1982. The Voodoo was a good airplane, but its performance figures were not up to those of the Aero. The Aero was built by Canadians, for Canadians, and captured the attention of the aviation world. Still the pride of many Canadians today, as recently as 2012, there was talk of reviving the Aero program to replace the F-35, which was becoming more and more costly. The demise of the Aero is one of the greatest what-ifs in aviation. Was the program too ambitious? Developing a new airframe, engine, fire control system, and weapon systems at the same time may very well have been. Today, for those of us who live outside of Canada, Canadian aviation is synonymous with rugged, dependable, and utilitarian airplanes like the Twin Otter. Had the Aero been allowed to enter production, who knows where the Canadian aerospace industry would be today? What do you think? Was the Aero ahead of its time? Would it have altered the course of Canada's defensive policies and programs had it made it into production? Let me know in the comments below. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this video, go ahead and subscribe and click the bell for notifications. If you'd like to support this channel and content like this, join my Patreon for as little as $2 a month. I'll leave a link in the description below. Stay safe. See you next time. And remember, all arrows go to heaven.